Okay, now we're recording. Now we're Hello. recording. Hello. How are you? Good. How's it going? Good. Good. Um, um, so, yeah. <laughs> who am I talking to? <laughs> this is Tegan Steelfisher. Um, I am a bartender in Northern California, and we've been over this, but anyway, I write poetry and stuff. Yes, yeah, see the previous podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But we're back to talk about Ernesto Cardinal. Yeah, he's really chill, I think. Um, quick side note before we get started, I really do want to write him a letter before he... He's like 94, so I've been like trying to figure out <laughs> how to write him a letter. So if anyone listening to this has any ideas, please DM me at barnonpoems.com. Or not .com. <laughs> that <laughs> would be a good... Barnon Poems. <laughs> That's a good username, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Ernesto Cardinal, he's really cool. Do you want to ask me questions about him, or do you want me to just go? Uh, no, I was just going to say, I think... Did I say you might be able to get get in touch with him through his publisher? I feel like if you wrote New Directions, it's possible they'd forward it. Yeah, I feel like it's possible too. Uh, but I know he was in the hospital earlier this year, so I'm not sure oh, no. if he's even like taking mail or not. Yeah, yeah. I feel like he's on that Noam Chomsky aging curve, though, where he's going <laughs> to live to be 105. Yeah, I hope he does because I would. Um, I thought about potentially like writing like a short book about him in the future and so it would be cool if i could actually meet him if i did that but we'll see that's just like an idea who knows if that will actually happen yeah that'd be cool he used to come well as i'm sure we'll discuss in the poems he he used to come to new uh well new york but the u.s pretty frequently yeah he did Okay, I feel like I should yeah, give an introduction you, you, you to him. Okay, so, well, maybe maybe we should start with okay. one quick question first. But like, so maybe we'll start with the question: like, what is liberation theology? Might be a a good place to start before we get into Cardinal himself. Yeah, totally. Um, liberation theology is um, a movement in Christian theology, specifically Catholic theology, um, in the past fifty to sixty years that concerns itself with social liberation and that I know quite a few other people think it's also just like a Marxist strain of Christianity um so yeah it, it originates in in Catholic theology in South America in the 60s and 70s primarily and then also finds itself in a lot of Protestant circles in the United States um specifically in, in black liberation struggles um yeah yeah that's liberation theology in like 10 seconds. No, that's good. And Ernesto Cardinal, I think, is one of the, the main people in the sort of, like, he's in the very midst of the liberation theology movement in Latin America. Yeah, I, the more I read about him, the more I realize he's actually like a really central figure in those movements, specifically in Nicaragua, where he's from. Um, and so he isn't as well known in the United States as I feel like he should be. Uh, because he is so prominent in all sorts of different liberation movements in Latin America. Um, yeah, he's, he's like, a. I don't know, he, <clears throat> maybe I'll get into this a little bit more, but he was kind of like up there with, um, let's see, in terms of like poets and stuff, I mean, he's like super 
influenced by people like Ezra Pound and um, whatnot, which is really strange. Anyway, because um, he's like a fascist and stuff. But <laughs> um, yeah, he he definitely is more well known in Latin America than he is here. Um, and I, I I'm hoping that in the future generations of poets, maybe he'll become more well known in. Um, the U.S. at least, because I think he has quite a bit to teach people writing right now, which is part of why I'm so fascinated by him. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. But like, in, well, I just want to say too, maybe a good way to start talking about him is he, he sort of, you know, he, he was born in Nicaragua, but he studied in the U.S. and that's kind of where he ended up being introduced to a lot of the modernist poetry we're talking about. Right. Um, he was born in an upper middle class family in Granada. Nicaragua in the 1920s and then he ended up going to the University of Mexico in the 1940s um and then after that he went to Colombia and that's where he ended up being really influenced by Ezra Pound and then he was just sort of horrified by like his fascism and his anti-semitism but he was really drawn to the collage techniques and um really vivid imagery in Pound's work and then in the 19 50s, he became involved with a group of people who were plotting to remove the first Somoza in Nicaragua by coup. Um, and so he like went to the mountains to become trained on how to use machine guns, which is hilarious because he ended up being a priest. Um, and then they ended up being turned over to Somoza, and then Somoza turned them over to his son, so that they could be tortured. Cardinal wasn't a part of that. I couldn't find a ton of information as to why he wasn't, like, jailed or something. But he wasn't. Yeah. Anyway, so he, like, kind of starts off, like, like a, sh- like a bullet out of a gun um, in terms of, like, the trajectory of his political involvement in South America. But he's also, like you said, like, extremely um, interested in... The United States and like even wrote like a whole book on, on American Indians um which I it's called homage to the American Indians but I, I haven't read it because like there's so much yeah, stuff he, to go he, through I haven't gotten there he really has written a lot and I I didn't manage to get my hands on that either I have a copy so I will I will send a copy to you at some point I, oh, well thank you yeah um But yeah, I mean, he's definitely really interested in how the United States affects his own country's politics. And I think that's part of why he travels there so much. And um, I I mean, just in terms of how he seems interested in the world, it's no surprise to me that he was interested in the U.S. and like wanted to travel there to kind of understand like um, kind of what the fuck we do up here. I just, I think that he had a pretty good grasp on, like, world politics and whatnot. He traveled quite a bit, um, not just in the Americas, but also in Europe. And And up all um, around South America, Brazil. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Cuba. Cuba. I Did I tell you this in the chat? He, like, he went to Cuba and he is noted as saying to his friend that he thought Cuba was a Christian state, which I think is so fascinating. What do you think about that? I, can I totally. Actually, <laughs> I, I actually kind of get that after reading the Gospel of Solentaname. I can see how he might think that. 
And I was actually listening to another podcast uh, today about, um, I think it was about Ernesto. It was actually about the gospel that he, the gospel of Slantaname. And they kind of made the point that, yeah, it's, um, it, it seemed like he did think that Christ, that Cuba was a Christian nation. I, th- I think that is what he thought. Yeah. It's kind of weird. Yeah. I, I understand it because I've been the mind of a Christian person. Um, and I think that his, maybe we can get this into, get into this later, but um, his idea of Christianity and like the kingdom of God or whatever was very communist. And so like, that's part of why he was able to, to do the revolutionary work that he was a part of um, in the way that he did, because he, he saw those things as being a part of his ministry and like his like commitment to, to Jesus and to like the gospel of, of Christianity, which is fascinating. Yeah. But after, well, I should say too, that um, poets were pretty militant and well, pretty militant would be an understatement. You know, the first in the Somoza family, the first um, Somoza family dictator in Nicaragua was actually gunned down by a poet in the 50s. Yeah, I, doesn't that make you feel emboldened that maybe, like, what we do um, isn't so far off base after all? Because uh, yeah. when I first learned about that, that's how I felt that um, maybe poets don't have, like, special knowledge or something. I don't really believe that, but. I think that maybe we have some some interest in what's going on, to say the least, and and that leads us to different kinds of action that um, can be radical in a lot of spaces. Yeah, but from the from that failed coup attempt, he ended up in the priesthood. I think he did. Um, so yeah, he. <laughs> this is funny. So like I. Th- his, li- his life is very com- bizarre. It takes a lot of twists and turns. <laughs> so I totally get it that. It takes so many twists and turns. Um, after that failed coup, he was part of like the movement of Catholics who... I don't know. Okay. I think he grew up Catholic, but I don't think he had like a specific conversion experience until the 1950s. At least that's what I understand from reading about his life. So he had like some sort of conversion experience after being a part of this failed coup um and that in some places was noted as being a part partially because the woman that he loved ended up um marrying a protege of samosa which i find really interesting because i think you know when you say the personal is political or the political is personal i think that that's true for everybody um but I think it's funny that so many people noted this when they were kind of talking about his life and his movement into the priesthood. So, yeah, he ends up being, like, firmly committed to celibacy as a uh, a part of how he views being a revolutionary, um, which I can talk about a little bit later. Yeah. Um, he... Becomes a priest in the 1950s. Um, and then he goes and he becomes a novice at the Trappist Monastery in Gethsemane. I think I'm saying that right. Um, in Kentucky. And there he was tutored by Thomas Merton, which for those who are listening who aren't super familiar with um, Catholic theology. I mean, Yeah, well, maybe we should also say what a Trappist, um, what, the, what they're all about. 
Yeah, the Trappists are technically Cisterians. Um, so they're a, a type of monk, but they're very strict monks. They actually don't really encourage intellectual work at all, which, um, you know, you could have all sorts of critiques of. Um, but they originate out of France and they have three different kinds of vows, which are a vow of stability, a vow of obedience, and a vow of conversion of matter manners. Um, the last of which means that they were committed to fasting and manual labor and being separate from the world and being silent. Um, so it's really interesting that someone like Merton and or Ernesto Cardinal find themselves in these spaces. Merton himself actually was um, kind of a wild card, so to speak, um, in his younger years. And I mean was completely the opposite of anything like a priest. <laughs> when he was growing up, he liked to party a lot and um, had a child when he was not married, which of course was like a huge scandal in his communities and all sorts of things. And then ended up being a Trappist monk. Um, yeah. So, um, what's the next point I should make about that? Um, yeah, well, so, I mean, Cardinal comes under that sort of influence in the Trappist and Thomas Merton scene in, in Kentucky there. Yeah. Cardinal had read Merton um, previously and had always kind of like wanted to meet him and then was surprised to find that he was his, uh, his mentor when he went to the Trappist monastery and Cardinal had a really, really hard time at the monastery. He actually got like an ulcer while he was there because the, the, ways in which they lived were so strict and like he had all of these headaches and he got really sick and that ended up being why he wasn't confirmed in that order um and went on to become i believe he was benedictine i forgot to look that up but um yeah he w he wasn't ever confirmed in the trappist monastery with merton but merton maintained like a relationship with him throughout their lives and um they exchange dozens and dozens and dozens of letters, which I'm working through reading right now because they're very interesting. Oh, have you and found anything interesting in there? I have, <laughs> but there's so much there. I don't even know what to talk about at this moment. He basically like Merton. Merton is kind of like, I'm still trying to figure out what to think about Merton. Because my, my gut reaction is just like, oh, uh, he was, he understood what was going on, but decided to hide from it, <laughs> um, which I think is probably a critique I would, could level about a lot of people that are clergy or like um, pastors and whatnot. So that could just be my own bullshit with Christianity coming out. <laughs> but I think, I think ultimately Martin did care about political work, but he wasn't um, he wasn't engaging in it the same way Cardinal was, to say the least. And so he kind of advised Cardinal to maintain his commitment to pacifism and all of these things, which Merton had taken a vow of pacifism and anti-war stances um, kind of right around when he was converted. And so he maintained that throughout his life. But Cardinal, I think, because he had had that experience of being a part of a failed coup and all of these things, and 
growing up in Nicaragua kind of knew um, the stakes of of pacifism in a way that maybe Merton didn't have access to being in the United States, living in a really cloistered community. So I'm not totally sure what to think about that, except that I, I think that it's problematic to be a pacifist in general. Um, and I think that Cardinal kind of came to the same conclusion in the sense that he, he understood that it wasn't always like, there wasn't like always a choice. Um, and he's quoted as saying, in reality, every authentic revolution prefers nonviolence to violence, but you don't always have the liberty to choose. Um, and so I think that a lot of his later revolutionary activity was actually in service to the idea of a just world that Merton had imparted on him without necessarily maintaining the staunch anti anti-war rhetoric that Merton had kind of wanted him and his other novices to follow. Right. And I'm, I'm asking too, because, you know, like we were saying, uh, Cardinal has a relationship, you know, he's someone who writes a ton of letters. He's seems to basically be corresponding with everyone from the time period. So, you know, he's also corresponded with a number of, you know, like, you know, the Catholic worker mo movement folks, and the various, you know, uh, religious leftists in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, he continued to basically tell them, you know, pacifism just doesn't work um, through through that whole time and through the, you know, the liberation, through the struggle with the Sandinistas. Um, but before we got to the Sandinistas, I think um, one of the ways people first heard about him was um, uh, in the commune at Solentaname, the... Uh, which is a, a small island in the, uh, what was it, let me think here, the western half of uh, Nicaragua, basically in, a, in one of the, the large lakes there. And he uh, started, he was a part of a, let me, let me think here, he was a monk there? What, what was he doing there again? Yeah, um, we kind of referenced this on the last podcast, and I, I didn't really know what I was talking about then. Now I do a little bit more. <laughs> um, but he... He started a commune, essentially, um, there on the island, um, which is something he and Merton had talked about doing in the past and ended up not doing it with Merton. But it was a community of artists and sculptors and poets and just campesinos um, and laborers and whatnot who came and lived with him. And um, they just kind of had a commune where on Sundays, instead of a church, they talked about um, all sorts of things regarding the Gospels and the Christian New Testament, um, which all of that is really fascinating because they uh, ended up recording a lot of those conversations and putting them into book form. So there's four different Gospels of Solentiname. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. That's how I've been pronouncing it. Yeah, I'm not. I didn't quite get that either. I listened to a few podcasts and they mentioned it, but they they didn't seem so concerned of their own pronunciation. So, yeah, here yeah. we are. Here we are. Um, but yeah, he was he was doing some sort of. I think what he thought was like a, um, like a homage to like a like um beginning Christian house churches um, in the first century. So <clears throat> I think that because of the political climate, he knew that some sort of like contemplation was necessary 
to start thinking through definitive action. And he did that for like, I mean, I think it was like 10 years they, they lived on the island and he had all sorts of visitors come, but he also had like a core group of people that kind of stayed there with him. Um, and they just grew their own food and, and worked together and talked about the gospel and Christian theology. And that's, I think, probably his largest theological contribution to uh, Catholic theology and liberation theology in general. Um, but, I mean, it's also not just his because it was um, a community effort. And all of those conversations are super fascinating. I don't know if you got a chance to read. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're really good. People should read them. Yeah, even so, like, let me let me ask you. Sorry, before let me just say really quick. Um, like, what's I think something that'll come back later is you know, Cardinal as a leftist wants to kind of democratize culture and he wants everyone to participate, and you can see that in the gospel here. But also, I just wanted to ask you too. Like, so who are you? Who are some of your favorite people that were were in the gospel here? (laughs) Are you asking me that? Because I told you I love Felipe. Yeah, yeah, well, I thought you had a few favorites, but yeah, Felipe's pretty, pretty nice. Yeah, I have a couple favorites. Um, here, I I will just read a couple quotes from it. Oh I yeah, you like should definitely. That is a little bit more um, helpful for people who haven't interacted with this text yet. So, like I said, these are all recorded conversations. So they're having a conversation about a specific text in the New Testament. Um, But one time Felipe says, It's by lies that the exploiters have made themselves masters of everything by deceiving the workers. That's why the word of God came to free us from this deceit. Um, So they're definitely doing like a very kind of like fuck you to the rich sort of um, materialist reading of the gospel, which I find really, really fascinating. Another time he says, um, let's see, where is it? Oh, no, wait, I'll read something from Loriano, um, who's another person who is a part of this community. He says, it's up to us to fix the world, to establish justice on earth, to make the revolution. Um, and later, a man named Alejandro says, exploitation is the opposite of truth. We're filled with exploitation because we're filled with lies. They've made us believe that evil is good. They've deceived us with propaganda. Um, and even later on, Felipe, who's like one of my favorite characters, like I said, he says, it seems to me that thinking is different today. God isn't going to liberate us. We have to do it ourselves with our own efforts. Let's get on with it and not wait for God to liberate us without us taking part in the liberation. And it's important to note, too, that quite a few of these people went on to be involved in armed combat um, as a part of the Sandinista revolution to overthrow the Somoza dictatorship. And Ernesto put his his priesthood on the line to support and uh, protect those people. Um, because he was given a lot of flack for for having parishioners who ended up being a part of what he considered to be a just war. Yeah, and well, one thing that like struck me about the gospel too was like um, I think a lot of times like Marxism gets criticized as being like messianic, but that's really not the case with this. They're very clearly out here trying to, I think you know like make the revolution not wait for you know the work worker jesus to free them that's 
very it's very clear they're out here like saying no the rich the rich are causing the ills of this society and we need to overthrow the government and uh well maybe something else worth talking about is uh, how did uh, the catholic church react to to this this stuff yeah they didn't react very well <laughs> there's a, a youtube video that you can look up of um pope john paul ii i believe coming to visit sometime after the revolution when Cardinal was the Minister of Culture for the Sandinista government after they had overthrown the Somoza dictatorship. And he's like wagging his finger at Cardinal and saying, you need to get your, basically, you need to get your shit right with the church. Um, and it's really, um, I mean, I can imagine as a Catholic watching something like that, it's sort of gut-wrenching or like really concerning. And I'm not Catholic, so to me, it's a little funnier, but it's also like it, it, I think it is the perfect image to understand exactly how the Catholic church was reacting to his involvement with the Sandinistas. Um, and I think Cardinal understood that the Catholic church supported dictators and their, their oligarchies or whatnot. Um, and they were not necessarily for movements for reform or even social justice um, in those governments because, as we know, uh, church power is, is often and usually almost always linked with state power. Um, and so I think that his commitment to what he conceived of as being the, the true gospel was... Um, really maddening to uh, his other uh, Catholics. And he actually received an open letter from someone who had been a, a student of Merton as well. Um, let me see if I can remember his name. He was named... I have so many notes here. Um, I don't remember his name, but but he was a he was a priest, I believe, in Kentucky as well, and he wrote a note about how Cardinal essentially was not being a good Catholic to Cardinal as an open letter, and Cardinal responded basically by saying that. Um, was that Berrigan? Are you thinking of Berrigan? Yeah, Berrigan. Let me see if I can find my note on him. Let me just um, read a let me just read a quick quote from Felipe that might. Uh, shed some light on uh, Cardinal's position on the Catholic Church uh, not approving of his teachings. So here's Felipe. And when the priests and bishops keep prudent silence in the face of crimes that happened in this country because they say that it's not proper for them to get involved in politics, they simply aren't following this example from the gospel. Yeah. We'll see, so, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I, I, think, I think we know what he thought. Yeah, we definitely do. I... Um, I, as someone who is a former Christian, always find it really fascinating how, how much, um, Christianity can be used for, for dual purposes, um, throughout human history. And that's like a really good example of how that's, how that's being done. And, um, it's, it's something that, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have thought about for millennia because of you know like the the christian gospel and the christian narratives um simultaneously a tool of oppression state oppression um 
used to justify slavery and all of these things, but also the tool that a lot of people who are oppressed by it use to free themselves. And, and I think that's part of why liberation theology and Cardinal specifically hold such interest for me, because I'm interested in that juxtaposition. I, I'm trying to understand how uh, one can be both a Christian and a Marxist um, as someone who's a former Christian. But also, I just found this, this quote from Cardinal in response to the priest that I mentioned. Um, if you don't mind me reading it. Yeah, go for it. He says, Father Berrigan wrote to me in that letter that no principle, no matter how high it is, was worth the spilled blood of even just one child, and I agree with this. But for the same reason, I feel that no principle, no matter how noble, even the principle of staunch nonviolence, is worth more than the blood of this one child. So it's really important to understand that what Cardinal is doing is creating not a revolutionary theology, but he is doing he's doing his ministry as sort of a response to what he perceives to be God's liberatory action in the world through the Sandinistas and through a desire to see justice and peace in Nicaragua. Um, and he doesn't he kind of takes up the idea of a just war. Um, and he doesn't agree with the Catholic Church when they they condemn him. Um, oh, but to answer your question about how the Catholics responded, um, notwithstanding just the finger wagging, um, John, John Paul uh, revoked his ability to revoked his ability to um, perform the sacraments. Um, so he wasn't able to, to give any sacraments, which is a very big deal. Um, and that was just revoked by Pope Francis this year. It wasn't even, so it's like 30 years, I think of him not being able to like perform the sacraments for anybody, um, as a priest. And, that was primarily because you're not supposed to hold any sort of public government office as a, as a Catholic priest. Um, and he did do that as a minister of culture. So, yeah. And I think, um, maybe it's, it'd be worth talking about. Um, so he, you know, during basically the civil war, he was in Costa Rica, um, you know, in, in exile. And he returned when the Sandinistas assumed power and he became the the culture minister, and you know, I think it's worth noting, like he had a lot of you know democratic initiatives to help the <clears throat> to help the people of Nicaragua, whether it was you know literacy programs or you know poetry workshop workshops around the country to you know encourage you know participation in in the arts. Uh, he you know he was, I think you can see in the gospel you know a for a foreshadowing of what was to come when he became the uh the culture minister there but you know what is that how you is that how maybe you see what what happened there yeah i think that's a really great way to think about it yeah definitely um i think that he saw his position as a minister of culture as an extension of his priesthood whether or not it was con condoned by the church so um, and he, he ended up ending his affiliation with the Sandinista government in the 1980s, I think it was 1987. 
because he perceived them to be moving towards a more authoritarian um, government, and he, he wasn't able to support that. So I didn't get to read too much about that, but it's something I will be reading about um, as I learn more about him, because I think it's, it's an important, important thing to know in, in terms of sort of the cogency of the way he lived his life and the way in which he did his ministry. Um, and, and Merton actually was noted as saying that he didn't see any discrepancies between Cardinal's um, priesthood, his poetry, and his political action, which is kind of touching on what we talked about in the last podcast that I find really interesting about um, some of these figures who were involved in in Christian theology specifically, but also um, other religious affiliations who are, are also artists or um, um, participating in, in liberatory or revolutionary movements. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and I think something else that might be... So, like, one thing we can, I think, find in his poetry, like, is an understanding for why, like, he moved towards, I think... Um, you know, participating in a, in a violent revolution and an attempt in an overthrow of, you know, the Somoza government. Like, so for instance, in Zero Hour, one of the, the book, not the, I mean, the poem, the, the title poem from the book, he talks about, like, he goes through the whole history of Nicaragua and Latin America and about, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase and the railroad companies and the um, concessions to, the, you know, U.S. interest and the, you know, the, we see the, the, the lack, you know, the exemptions to imports and exports and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, he talks about, uh, let me see. Yeah, and all the conditions are dictated by the company with liabilities in case of confiscation. Uh, liabilities, the nation, not of the, liabilities of the nation, not of the company. And the conditions imposed by the latter, the company, for the return of the plantations to the nation, given free by the nation to the company at the end of 99 years. Quote, and all the other plantations belonging to any other persons or companies or enterprises, which may be dependents of the contractors, and in which this latter has, has or may have in the future any interest or, <laughs> it's just some legalese, but um, <laughs> yeah, but you can, I mean, we can see in the, in the poem, like the interests, like that's something like I would, you could see in poems by like, you know, I think he was influenced by say like, you mentioned Pound, I think William Carlos Williams is another one you could see that kind of quotation of like legal historical documents or newspapers and like William Carl and um, Patterson or something. And yeah, like in that, in his poetry, you can see him like clearly laying out why he <laughs> supports overthrowing the government. What do you have any, like, uh, do you, do you feel that way about his poems? Let me. Yeah. I think that's a really good analysis of, of what he tends to do. I, my analysis is more like, I think he does like a lot of documentary style. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, he's doing documentary well, type work, I think. Yeah. And I mean, how, how do you, so I think this would be a really good question too. Like, I don't want to spend too much, like, I don't want to spend too much time comparing him to, I think American poets, but I think this is a really important point. Like how he, how his documentary style compares to the documentary documentarian style of American poets. Like, how, how did you, how did you feel about that? Um, to be honest, because I'm still learning about different kinds of American poetry, I don't have a ton of people to compare him to um, from my own reading. And I think that you would probably have a lot more 
interesting things to say about that than I do. But I do think that the ways in which he was, like, even, like, he starts off some of his poems by just talking about, like, native birds in, in Nicaragua. And then, like, tracing how those birds are are sitting on top of fences outside of the governmental palace. And then he goes on to, to like, talk about, um, you know, different sorts of, of affects of, like, that governmental palace upon the people of Nicaragua. And, and then he's, like, he's very, like, when you, when you read his poems, it feels like you're, you're learning to think about Nicaragua in the way that he thought about Nicaragua. Um, and you're able to visualize it, like, it's, like, a script or, like, a movie, a movie in your head, at least it was for me. And so even though I've never been there, and I don't, I'm still learning about um, South American politics in general, like, I was able to, to pick up on his reasons for revolutionary activity um, pretty quickly. Like, even just, like, the poem you mentioned, Zero Hours, like, him talking about the ways in which bananas are marked up or something, um, and, and what that does to the people that are, like, growing and picking those bananas, and then, like, how increasingly throughout the poem, like, um, the, the bananas become cheaper and cheaper, but that means that the wages for the people that are, are participating in its production are, are going down as well. It's very weird. Um, and I mean that in the very truest sense of the word, like, he's able to, to kind of swing from the United Fruit Company to, I don't know, just, like, kids hanging out on the street, like, within, like, two seconds. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the only poets I can think of, like, I mean, the like, with Zero Hour especially, the poet he most reminded me of, and he writes, I think, like, you know, he writes in several different modes, I'd say, like, the origin of species, the the, both the book and the poem are, I'd say, quite different from Zero Hour. But like in Zero Hour, he reminds me a lot of like uh, Louis Zukovsky and, you know, the scope and ambition of what he's trying to do. Because he is he, like, he's mostly focused on Nicaragua, but he's also talking about, you know, U.S. imperialism. He's talking about um, Latin America as a whole. He talks, you know, there's a poem, there's a couple of poems set in Brazil. I think he went to a conference there and he talks about, talks about that as well, talks about their situation. Yeah. And, yeah, and I mean, he has he has a global sense of things. You know, you see it too in poems. Like, there are a couple poems where that I've read where he, you know, was um, I think of, in a, in his function as minister of culture, I think he was doing a tour of Europe, and he writes about you know European history. He writes about I think East Germany at some point too. Mm. And you know, you can see you see a you see an awareness of the world that that really reminds me. I think of um, Zukovsky in that way. But, you know, I think what you're talking about, too, like, um, one of the other poems that, like, well, like, so let's maybe, like, talk about one of his other modes, like, that would be, like, The Origin of Species, where I think he's trying to maybe do do liberation theology, like, the Christianity and the Marxism, but also poetry and also, you know, an origin story. I I think that was one you're really interested in. Yeah, I find it really fascinating that he, um... He is trying to talk about, like, the evolutionary theory um, of Darwin 
alongside Christian theology because I, I mean, I truly don't think there's a ton of theologians specifically like people in Catholic circles who are also priests who are doing that. Um, and so like, yeah, like I even quoted an ep like one of my epigraphs in my book is from um, the very first poem in Origin of Species. And I'll just read the, the last um, little stanza from that poem because I think it kind of gets at like the heart of this whole book, which is 11, uh, whoops, not 11. What am I saying? Evolution. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like tongue tied. There's like so much here because, you know. Yeah, it's, it's like, I, got, I really got to say it is like he wrote so much. It really is overwhelming to try and grapple with it all. Yeah, he's like he's like a really exciting figure and not without critique. Um, although oh, I'm sure. sure. Yeah. I, like, yeah, I could get into that maybe a little bit later. But yeah. Yeah. So this stanza reads Evolution unites us all, the living and the dead. Dharma discovered it, that we come from a single cell. That is, we are interlinked. If one rises from the dead, we all rise from the dead. I think that that's sort of theologically what he is he is trying to push in all of his work is that um you know uh, we are a part of an ecological system um and we affect one another biologically as well as um socioeconomically and and all of these things and so I think that comes into like his his international outlook as well because he he sees the the things that were going on in Nicaragua at the time of um, all of his writings as being like affects and um, whatnot of things that are going on in other parts of the world, specifically with large world powers like the United States and whatnot. Um, so I, I think that he tries to take that on by using evolution um, and, and science. I mean, he's just like, he's brilliant because he, um, he kind of brings in all of these physics things that you wouldn't ever expect to be in poetry into his work. And so you're like learning, you feel like you're kind of like in science class, but then you're also like in a religion class at the same time while you're reading um, the origin of species specifically. If I'm right, remembering right, like he, he talks about like ants and the kind of mutual aid Kropotkin way at some point in there too, which is really interesting. Like he, he like, I think in a, in a lot of ways, you can compare his ambition to Marx, but like, even Marx didn't have the scientific ambition of Kropotkin or Cardinal, probably, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think he saw poetry um, and poetics to be the mode at which he could kind of bring a bunch of things together. I think, I mean, I think a lot of poets feel that way, but I think specifically he was trying to work out sort of maybe why people's oppression functions the way it does, um, how how we can, like, be really honest about that oppression, et cetera. And then also think about like larger questions that a lot of different kinds of people have had over time um, and talk about them from his own location. Yeah. And I think like to maybe something like something to talk about too, like his interest in evolution in this way is also about like how he conceives of, of humanity as, you know, coming from one origin point. And I think he has that, like, I think his or interest in that is also in constructing that kind of universalism. Yeah. Um, I think he definitely has some sort of, I mean, <clears throat> I think that most 
if not all Christians, have some sort of universal idea about what makes up the universe and why and what we're sort of hurtling towards, so to speak. I think, like I mentioned in the last podcast, there's this like very specific trajectory of Christian conceptions of human history, which includes the sciences. Um, and so he brings that into his, his work quite a bit. Um, and, and that, I mean, that can be very rigorously critiqued, and I think it should be. Um, but it's still really, really interesting that he does that. And then ends up in these sorts of revolutionary activities. It's like he's inaugurating some sort of kingdom of God. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. Like I think, I think for me that's probably one of the one of the things I'd, I'd critique of his in his uh, ideology and his poems anyway is the that kind of Christian universalism that I think yeah we did talk about on the previous podcast. But I mean, yeah, no, I mean, go on. Oh yeah, I just think with the Christian universalism. Um, I think that actually has maybe maybe some of the roots of modern day racism and colonization that we're seeing in the past 200 years. Um, my partner does a lot of work around Jewish studies with that. <laughs> and so, like, um, I have mm. a lot of thoughts about that. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe but... let me ask you specifically. I think there's a line in the poem, The Origins of Species about i want to say about the holocaust do you remember do you know what line i'm talking about no but i have it right uh, in front of me so let me look okay. really quick yeah let's look <laughs> let's look <laughs> really quick through this 10 yeah. page poem <laughs> he writes really long poems too he, another thing is he definitely does like uh maybe this is a good tangent to go on right now while you look like he does definitely is informed kind of too like one of his poems mentions he has a correspondence with like Frank O'Hara, and you definitely could see that kind of longer yeah. poem influence from a lot of these modernist authors that got taken up by writers like Frank O'Hara and the New York School there. Yeah, I don't see anything um, oh, about the Holocaust I think in I here. It. I think you I got, got it. it. Okay, God imperfect. God, it's page ten on to, going on to page eleven. Mm. God imperfect conception as the electron it also is without the electron being an illusion, the explanation of the Holocaust, that to create, he ceased to be God. Creation as kenosis, emptying of God, impo impotent in the face of Pinochet, and a God not anthropomorphic, but one with whom I, but one with whom I can talk. Oh, yeah. Um, so kenosis in Christian theology is like, um, like the renunciation of like divine nature, just for anyone listening who may not know that. Yeah, I didn't so know like, what that meant. The self-emptying of God. Um, so that makes sense in that line. Because he's saying in his, his understanding of the Shoah um, that God is self-emptying so that that he can be one with humanity, which is super fucked up. And that's part of my yeah. problems with Christianity. Um, yeah, yeah. I did, I, that, that was one of those lines I remember and was just like, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, didn't, I didn't quite understand it because I don't have the theological background. But yeah, thank, thank you. Yeah, totally. Um, I think it's strange that he's saying like God is not anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic, but one with whom he can talk. I think that 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 anthropomorphizing God means that he is someone you can talk with. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I would say too. Like something I that strikes me is oh no, go on. No, you go ahead. I was gonna say like it's weird that he uh, like I think a lot of like a lot of moderns like a lot of contemporaries thought like maybe the line between or like maybe troubles the idea of 
animals or whatever and the way they're used in philosophy and he he doesn't seem to do that he has a very like despite being quite aware of a lot of lefty thought whether it's Kropotkin or Marx Marx's perspectives on Darwin he he still is using this kind of evolutionary theory where humans are on the top of the pyramid basically yeah um i i think that that's pretty true and and most christian theology specifically because of the two genesis narratives um that have been exegeted throughout christian history and the ways in which those exegesis have been interpreted um i think you know there's a whole lot there you know hundreds of people have written on genesis um which is actually written after quite a few of the hebrew bibles um books <laughs> which is really interesting but yeah um i think he draws on that quite a bit like you said and he maybe kind of takes for granted some things that i think should be held up for for consideration and analysis and like rigorous critique um like and you know another critique of him is that he sort of the ways in which he speaks about women and the earth and animals like, all kind of go hand in hand, which is a, a function of Christian theology. Um, and one of my favorite theologians, Rosemary Radford Ruther, does a really good analysis of this in her book, Gaia and God. Um, and I've learned so much from reading her, her analysis of um, sort of eco-feminist theologian understandings of the ways in which creation narratives have been interpreted and how... Um, um, certain certain kinds of human beings, but not all, have been equated with the earth and therefore have been subjugated. And that actually comes up in my own work quite a bit too. But yeah, yeah. But like, um, let me let me ask you too about one of your other, I think, favorite poems that maybe shows a different side of Ernesto's writing because we've kind of been focused on the origin of species, the origins of species, where I think a lot of like we can see a lot of his like uh, Christian liberationist thoughts, but for me that was also a book, one of his books where I saw like a lot of like things I thought, oh, this isn't, <laughs> this is this is a little problematic. But that's not like the only kind of writer he is. So let me ask you about like um, the Marilyn Monroe poem. I think that shows a really oh, different side. Oh yeah, um, I think the Marilyn Monroe poem is just him eulogizing her, but using her as a not using, I mean, sure, using whatever, reflecting upon her death and, and maybe the sorts of American or um, United States consumerism that may have led to her objectification as a woman in the film industry um, and in the modeling industry. Um, let me let me just look it up really quick. It's a really good poem. Anyone yeah, you can just, and for, for people listening, you can just Google Ernesto Cardinal. Marilyn Monroe, and you will most likely get to a copy of the poem. This is one that is available online. A lot. I don't. Let me see if Zero Hours. What were you saying? Oh yeah, I was just gonna say um, it. The title is really interesting for me because I think it is in keeping with a lot of the ways in which Christians think about prayer. Um, where I mean, it's literally titled titled "Prayer for Marilyn Monroe." So in his in this poem, he feels that he is praying for her. Um, which is uh, in keeping with the ways in which a lot of Christians, um, specifically Catholics, conceive of the dead. Um, but yeah, I mean, he kind of puts the responsibility for her death back onto 
um, the people who were were viewing her and were her. Uh, yeah, in a very consumer type of mindset. Like consumer, yeah. I think would be the right word. Yeah, definitely. Um, and preying upon the sorts of uh, things that come up in, in young cisgender women maybe in the ways that they're formed in contemporary society in the United States um, towards being uh, objects of consumption. So Yeah, I think, let me, let me read a little bit from another one of, I can't remember what poem this, this is from, but this is from one of the, a, it's, a, it's got New York in the title, it's a poem about when he was, he flew into New York, and I think in the, oh, yeah. in the 70s. Um, it goes, uh, this is a, a, a small quote from it. Uh, a young fellow with a campaign button on his chest. Impeach Nixon. Plastic women. I cross the street in fear. Walk, don't walk, in red. The clerks in the stores, almost all Cubans. And it seems to me that I'm hearing talk of by revolutionaries. The sky, filthy. Police, sirens. Old women talking to themselves. Uh, Coronel was telling about that French Dominican here who told him, Since I came three months ago, I haven't been able to say prayers. Uh, Museum of Modern Art, no time to stop in. And what for? Frank O'Hara used to work here. He wrote his poetry on his lunch hour, sandwiches and Coca-Cola. We wrote, we once wrote each other. Now I've bought his lunch poems, 150 at um, Brentano, Brentano's. Uh, and the cars remind me of his death. Run, uh, run over in New York on his lunch hour. Walk, don't walk. Dorothy Day expects me at the Catholic worker, says Tony. On the telephone, she remembered she'd once written me. And that's mm. just, yeah, and I think that, like, what you were saying earlier is he, he always, he really is someone who's capable of, like, turning topics, like, really quickly. Like, we see here him kind of maybe almost writing about New York in a style that would remind, that reminds me a bit of, you know, George Oppen, but then pivoting to Frank O'Hara, and then at the end, they're pivoting back to Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker, and, and they're in all yeah, the space totally. of half a page. Yeah, totally. It feels like he's purposefully jarring the reader in and out of these different vignettes or like scenes um, to juxtapose different ideas so that you kind of get, you're able to draw from like those images, your own sense of what he's thinking about without him just spelling it out for you. I, I mean, that's really brilliant. Yeah, no, I mean, his poetry, like, I think... Um, there's a lot of interest now in, you know, like Zukovsky and Oppen and some of the modernists like, um, like Carlos Williams and whatnot. And like Cardinal is totally writing in that, in that same vein, but taking it in a different direction. He's doing it in a way that, you know, reminds me of, you know, writers like, you know, O'Hara or O'Hara, for instance, Frank O'Hara, but is totally different and his concerns are totally different. Whereas a lot of those New York school writers took a very different approach to politics, almost well, as Ashbery said, uh, showing you how his mind works rather than showing you what his politics are. Um, uh, Cardinal is just explicitly saying, you know, this is why Nicaragua has, you know, been fucked up by U.S. imperialism and why we're going to overthrow the government. Like he, that, that's like explicitly some of his poems. And yeah, no, what are you saying? Oh, I was just agreeing with you. Yeah, I think, I think he kind of spells it out for people. Yeah, and he does it in the way that, you know, like you're, like I can see why, um, he doesn't really remind me of Pound so much except for maybe in the Nicaraguan cantos, which are <laughs> for obvious reasons, but a lot of the time he reminds me more of, um, Zukovsky, to be honest. 
but mm. yeah, but I don't know, like his use of documentary poetry, I guess, in talking about some of these the, the conflicts in Nicaragua. Like I say conflicts because he you know, he, he details the history of Nicaragua from, you know, colonization to the president and you know there the Sandinistas weren't the first to attempt to overthrow the US backed government there. And he chronicles, you know, the previous attempts. And, you know, that that manner of doing it, I guess, you know, it really especially like I'm thinking like of Carolyn Forche and her poems in her documentary poems about Latin America, which in a lot of ways seems to call for US intervention. He he was always someone who was about empowering the people of Nicaragua, of, you know, empowering the indigenous people in a way that I think is a lot more admirable than what US poets are doing anyway. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I've been thinking about um his his method of engaging with politics both from within and without um Nicaragua. Like I think that he's writing for Nicaraguan people and to them, and also simultaneously writing for people who have no idea what the fuck is going on in Nicaragua. And that ability to straddle the, the that line is really I think what what any leftist poet writing now can can learn from. Yeah, and it's and it's doubly hard for him too because he's both writing in a way that I think is, you know, accessible to you know just you know someone who an average you know Nicaraguan, but he's also writing in a way that you know I think he's you know he one of his poems is about going to see James Laughlin, the publisher of New Directions Press, which is what which were his publishers, well, which are his publishers now, but um. He, it seems to me he's also very clear this whole time that he was writing for, with an eye towards the fact that you know you Americans could read this. So he's really got it, you know, doubly hard here trying to write to all these people. But I think he succeeds, and that's really something wild to think about. It is really wild. I think that he, um, like especially in his his poem trip to New York, where he's talking about the connections that he makes there, like. Um, he's talking about, you know, the conversations that he's having with people there and, and kind of sort of inserting his own, like, observations about U.S. imperialism into those conversations. And he can just, I mean, he doesn't say this explicitly, but he can just tell that the people that he's interacting with have no clue what the fuck is going on or, like, even what's down the street from them and how it's affecting people thousands of miles away. And, um... Yeah, I I don't even know if he's trying to educate people so much as he's just like one himself trying to understand and then also uh trying to engage people where they're at and hopefully you know both parties can come out kind of understanding a little bit more and being more emboldened to take up arms or revolutionary acti- activity in general. Um I think that that's kind of the the goal of all of his his work. Which I am emboldened by and and hardened by. Um, I've stopped saying inspired because it's (laughs) not helpful. (laughs) I I, I think heartened is is a better way to to think about some of some of his writing specifically. Yeah, that that reminded me too. Like I feel like, do do you know this? Let me know if you if this sounds familiar. But I feel like he wanted like when he was exiled in Costa Rica, he wanted to come back to Nicaragua to be part of the fight. But I think the 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 higher ups and the and the Sandinistas basically said to him, you know, you we can't afford to lose you. You can speak to the international audience in a way that no one else can. 
I guess. And it really does. Yeah, does that, does that ring a bell? Yeah, I think he was he was self-exiled in Costa Rica. Yeah. Um, and he also, he's quoted, okay, so like there's some conflicting accounts of his like desire to take up arms <laughs> um, <laughs> because <laughs> because I think some people were like no he's like a priest like of course he doesn't want to do that um, and then he himself has said he liked privately to friends like he wasn't sure if he could take up arms but that he supported the fight nonetheless um, and was in solidarity with everyone who did take up arms especially those from his community in Solentinimi so i I'm still trying to figure out what exactly his stance was, like if he himself would have like taken out the shotgun and killed Samosa or something. I have no idea. Um, I'm sure maybe if if he had had that opportunity and could have, he probably would have, you know, like considered it. But I think his connections to the Catholic Church kind of gave him some reservations about some things, even though he, he obviously turned out to not be a pacifist. So I'm not totally sure. Um, I think that's yeah. kind of a little mystery for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. And yeah, I guess too, I wanted to, it, re- it reminded me of like, his approach to poetry, this reminded me of a, of a quote I have of his. Uh, he says, uh, our culture is not elitist, but democratic, a culture by and for the people. But this does not mean that we denigrate the writer, painter, or musician who, because of his excellence, necessarily belongs to an elite. Nor does it mean that we believe culture and the arts must be adapted or simplified so that they will be accessible to the masses. What we strive for is a culture of excellence that we that will be at the same time a culture for of the people. Uh, our vice president, the novelist Sergio Ramirez, has said that we must massify culture. What we really understand by this is the massification of excellence. And I guess... Yeah, no, what do you say? What do you think about that? Why did that, like, why why that quote? I well, guess. I guess, yeah, I guess for me, like, when I'm reading his poems, it does seem like he never, he never is, he's never simplifying, as he says. He's He's always writing, I guess, in a way to be excellent in the manner he understood it, which was, you know, very informed by the various U.S. modernist poets. I should say, too, that he probably was very, also very influenced by Ruben Dario, the Nicaraguan poet from the previous century. But um, yeah, I guess I guess what's interesting uh, for me about that is he, like he also, in addition to writing poetry, he was you know still the had a role in the U.S. Uh, the Nicaraguan government attempting to you know improve literacy and get people involved in the arts. Yeah, I think I read that he had had. Okay, it's something. It's either five thousand or fifty thousand people enrolled in his literacy program in Nicaragua. I can't remember which number it is, which is a really big difference. But um, he, yeah, he. I think he saw culture as being uh, the potential for more sites of liberation for the human person as in communities. Um, to, to be into themselves and not unto you know um, these sort of imperialist and colonist projects and and that's why he um, maybe saw culture as being an important part of his work as well as revolutionary work in general. Yeah, I'm I'm struggling to remember how how much because uh, like that was one of the big um, uh, campaigns under him was the literacy campaign. I'm trying to remember how how successful that was. I'm I know it was 
quite successful because, you know, at the time, uh, under the dictatorship, I think probably less than half of Nicaraguans could read. But I, I think uh, now it's up to 80 or 90 percent. So I, I think he definitely led the effort. It was part of the beginning of that effort, regardless. Yeah, I haven't read too much about it. And once we get off of here, I probably will go read about it because I had just started reading about it in like the past two days. Um, so... Yeah, I just like think that that's I guess like sometimes it seems like a, like an origin of species for instance origin of species for instance like it seems um I guess the massification element does just seems kind of lacking in that but when I read a lot of his more documentary poems or just kind of the I was walking around New York City type poems um or wa- I was walking around East Germany poems etc like those kind of poems to me seem I guess, more in, in the spirit of what he was trying to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I could see why you would like them, too, having read some of your work. And kind of <laughs> yeah, I think, you... I think I'm totally biased, but yeah, I think I'm projecting. No, you're not. I think that maybe, <laughs> I think when you find poets that have such a, like, breadth of body of work with kind of numerous topics and things that they're exploring in their work, um, it's easy to be like, oh my god, like this is kind of what I'm hoping to do, or I can learn something from this and bring it into my own work. And he's kind of one of those people, um, especially, you know, I think for, obviously for people on the left who are trying to understand how their work relates to their praxis or whatever. Um, yeah, and I think he's definitely someone that anyone, any like leftist poets who, especially, you know, if you're a fan of the various leftist modernists you should definitely be checking out Ernesto Cardinal because he has a he really does have I mean in addition to saying a lot in terms of how much he wrote he really does have a lot to say about all these topics and you know whether it's whether it specifically relates to the US or Nicaragua he's he's said a, a ton of stuff that's worth listening to definitely and I think also like paying attention to his life as as well as his work is really helpful for me at least because I always kind of struggle with um I think even Wendy was tweeting about this the other day like how like Marxist feminists like can go back and like write and stuff and then like there's like some anarchists that are just like involved in riot and like on the streets or whatever and I that's something I'm still trying to like um understand you know what I can I me in and of myself Tegan Steelfisher can can uh, be a part of you know being a person that lives with PTSD and all of these things, and so it's helpful for me to see other poets who are also engaged in revolutionary activity in various ways because I think that there's not, um, I don't know, I, my what I wanted to say is there's not like a litmus test for being a revolutionary. You just have to be committed to the struggle, and I think that uh, that's something that I think is portrayed in Cardinal's life and work um, in ways that are really helpful to think about and think through. Yeah, for sure. Let me, and let me ask you this too. Like how do, how would you like compare his writing to the poetry of other like liberation, liberation, theology, <laughs> liberation, theologist poets? Cause I know there are, there are quite a few. He's not the only there, one. There are quite a few, but I think the breadth of his work is just far surpassing pretty much anybody else that I am personally aware of. Um, in terms of poetry, at least, like the only other person I'm like super familiar with is Dorothy Sowell, who I've talked about in in the other podcast. Um, but I just I don't know I don't now that I've like read a lot more of his stuff I think that he 
is actually engaged in struggle and maybe other people are performing being engaged in struggle and there's a cognitive dissonance between what people think being engaged in struggle is that like Ernesto just doesn't seem concerned concerned with like he's 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 forced to be engaged in it in in a material way um in a way that other uh, liberation theologians around the globe, specifically in like e- Euro-American cultures, are not forced to engage with. Um, but I mean, he's also really uh, influenced by Camila Torres, who is a Colombian socialist. He was also like a Roman Catholic priest um, who ended up leaving the priesthood to be a part of the National Liberation Army um, as a guerrilla. And so, like, throughout his whole life, he was trying to reconcile revolutionary Marxism and Catholicism. And I know that that uh, Cardinal was extremely influenced by him, but he's not a poet. So, like, I don't really, I don't really know, you know, of other um, people who are poets who are kind of doing the same, like, trifecta kind of work that Cardinal was in terms of, like, spiritual work, materialist work, which I kind of see as, like, the same thing. And then, you know... Uh, this sort of arts stuff. So that's why he's so fascinating. Um, so I guess I can't really answer your question because I'm, I'm still trying to understand myself. But No, I think you did answer it. He, I mean, I th- people listening to this might be sick of hearing this, but he really, he really is someone who it's hard to make any comparisons. He really, he really did do a lot that it's... So he really did do so much, it's hard to really compare him to, to anyone that I can think of. Whether it's you know like like the Gospel of Salentiname or his own poetry or his work in with the Sandinistas, it's it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, and um, part of why I just like want to write him a letter. <laughs> but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, what would you what would you write in your letter? Say? Oh my God, I'd probably say, "Hey, I'm an apostate from the evangelical world, um, but also I like really appreciate your work as someone who's a former Christian." And it gives me some sort of respect for for any sort of Christianity. Um, yeah, I think that would probably be my letter. And then I would kind of maybe ask him some questions about um, not just like his theoretical struggles with pacifism and, and, and revolutionary struggle or something, but maybe about the practical ways in which he was engaging his community and, and how he saw his spirituality um influencing and driving those things i think that would be a really interesting thing to hear him talk about because um from a secular perspective which i'm i'm coming from now so i i think he holds a lot of interest for me specifically because i am an apostate and had planned on being a pastor at one point in my life um i i had planned on going on to get my and become like a chaplain um and so the fact that he had served as like a field chaplain for the sandinistas is really fascinating to me because um a lot of my own work is uh still spiritual in the in the sense that i'm engaging people on a spiritual level um and i see that as being a materialist thing and i think that he did too so yeah, I mean, let me ask you too. Like, sorry to maybe pivot a bit, but like, what what keeps bringing you back to Christianity and liberation theology specifically? Um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm still trying to figure out what the fuck happened to me in the first 22 years of my life. 
Um, I, I mean, I, I, in other places in my work, people can kind of understand uh, my my deep hatred for the ways in which evangelicalism forms people towards certain ends and kind of grooms them, um, especially in the right wing, uh, towards certain political projects from childhood. And so that's all of what apostolate is kind of me trying to work out is my own involvement in those projects because, uh, because it's like really terrifying to grow up into an adulthood, into adulthood and realize that, um, your whole life you've just been being groomed um, for these like really terrible like racist uh, homophobic uh, colonizing sort of projects and and that was my experience um, and so that's part of why I keep coming back to liberation theology because it's the only part of Christianity that I can still see the remnants of whatever I thought you know my real faith was and and so um, a lot of the things that I, I held on to throughout my experience in Christianity were, um, you know, like I had memorized the entire book of Matthew, um, by the time I was like 13 years old. And, and that was specifically because of Jesus's engagement with the poor and with people who were sick. And I was around quite a few people who were sick when I was growing up. Um, and I, I lived with few people who were mentally ill and um, was a caretaker, you know, for someone with Alzheimer's when I was young. And um, I was trying to make sense of my world when I was that age um, through the lens of Christianity. And now coming outside of it, I kind of see the ways in which um, my relationship to Christianity helped me get through those things as well as sort of solidified a commitment to uh, understanding why certain people are exploited and sick and why other people are not. Um, and so that's kind of what brings me back to it again and again. And, and also I think I share, uh, a common, uh, you know, frustration with a lot of these people who, who, um, I mean, not to say that I like live in Latin America or something where I'm like, <laughs> but, um, like, when Camila Torres is trying to reconcile revolutionary Marxism and Catholicism, like I, I understand that on a, on a deeply personal level. And so um, it's still a question that I have, even though I've apostatized and I no longer am confessional or part of any sort of Christian practice. Um, but I, I think that it still very much informs my relationship to uh, the left and um is kind of how I started engaging with the left in the first place. And I think that that's true for a lot of people. That's a very long-winded answer, but yeah. No, no, that's a good answer. Cause like, I, I wanted to ask too, because, you know, in, in preparing for this, you also sent me a bunch of, you know, PDFs and, and books about, you know, like, I guess the history and context of liberation theology within like, you know, the larger history of Marxist struggles. And like, I guess, I guess, like you know, it's it's interesting to think about think about it, like what it means, I guess, for for the U.S. context too, and what it means, you know, in in our own lives. Yeah, definitely. I think I think a lot of people that are on the left have had some touch of Christianity um, growing up, um, and and there there are 
there are figures out there like Ernesto who can maybe be like a sounding board to help us like kind of <laughs> um, negotiate our own place within the political sphere um, and, and maybe why we've come to certain ideas that we have, uh, not just because of like our personal uh, exploitation or whatnot, but yeah, definitely. I think, I think liberation theology, like I said in the last podcast, is something that everyone can learn from, whether or not they find themselves caring about spirituality in general, um, or even religion. I, th- I think that, uh, I might think this because I'm religi- married to a religion scholar, <laughs> but, um, uh-huh. y- you know, religion kind of codes the ways in which we interact with each other, whether or not we think that. And there's a lot of secularized religious and theological concepts that come into play when we're talking about politics. And so I'm interested in trying to understand and uncover what those things are and not just doing that for myself, but doing it for other people who maybe grew up like me or didn't grow up like me. Um, and I, I'm barely scratching that, that project. <laughs> like I'm, I'm like, like a year and a half into doing it. And I've kind of realized the depth and breadth of, of that work. Um, but it's something I, I personally am committed to because I think that a lot of ways, uh, in a lot of ways, <clears throat> what we're seeing politically now is the result of um, a failed ability to, to critique and um, destroy certain religious, <laughs> religious affiliations and elements that are like really toxic and manifest psychologically um, in the world and materially in the world. Um, in ways that harm and exploit and kill people and um and in other ways there there are elements in specifically Christianity, which is the thing that I know the most that maybe we can learn from. And so those that juxtaposition is, is a really difficult thing to tow and I think that um I think that it's an important thing to do specifically because I live in I we live in a Christianized world. Um uh, because of imperialism and colonization and the Christianity is embedded in those things. I don't think that we can afford to ignore it. So, yeah. And I, like, let me, let me ask you this too. Like, I think this is a good question to ask. Cause we've just talked about how much stuff there is from Ernesto. Uh, like where, where would you start with Cardinal's writing? Like where, where should someone start? You think uh, my, my nomination would, I'll go, I'll go first. And some thing at all. My, my nomination would probably be zero, zero out. But what, what do you think? I agree. That was, that was like a hundred percent where people should start. Um, zero hour is a great introduction into his, his, uh, reason for writing his reason for being a part of the Sandinista movement and, um, some of his theology too, I think. And it's really short too. So it's like, yeah, you can yeah, we're finish it in about, a day. Yeah. We're talking about the, the short book zero hour, not the, not just the poem, which is also in there, which is, one of my favorite of his poems, I think. Yeah, but, yeah. definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I also really think the gospel is a good, good place to start too. Um, it's, it's longer, but it really is. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's long. No, it's easier. I feel like to read the conversations. Um, it's a little bit faster. Yeah, and there's, and there's so many. There's really so many great lines in there from all the various participants, including Ernesto Cardinal himself, and all the various. People who come, whether they're campesinos or you know journalists or Protestants who make fools of themselves, you know that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, um, when I went to the library 
a few months ago when you had suggested doing this podcast and I was like looking for books by him. I went to the UC Davis library because uh, I, I snuck in with my husband and I cool. was like, I was like looking for his books and I, I was just looking for a guest volume one of the gospel of soul and And then we got there and I was like, Oh my God, there's like four volumes. It's like, I know no idea. And so I was like planning on sending you some and then, uh, yeah, it's okay. You, you then... just volume one is <laughs> like, it's a good intro. <laughs> right. So like I have volume two here, but I haven't even scratched it yet. Cause I was yeah. so overwhelmed. There was so much there. Yeah. And I haven't read, um, I think recently there was a new collection. Like recently, within the past like ten years, the uh, was it Pluriverse collection? I want to say. Yeah, I, I have not, that one too. Yeah, I have not read that because I because I read several of his other collections first, and then I opened that up, and I was like, hmm, well, it seems like I've already read most of the poems in here, but not all of them. I should say <laughs> there's some there's some one, new ones in there that I haven't read. Yeah, yeah, he totally has some repeating themes. I think he keeps circling around, which is you know totally a poet thing to do. No, I meant like, like I meant literally. They just kept put some of the same poems in from previous collections. Oh, really? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Well, he also to... does repeat themes, but yeah. I will have to look then because I haven't even cracked that book open. No, oh, yeah. I well, I tried, but it, like I said, there was. <laughs> I felt like there wasn't a ton of new stuff in there. Yeah. But yeah, I hope. Well, something else. I hope. I hope more of his stuff gets translated. I do too. There's definitely got to um, be more. There, there's a ton more. I ha- yeah, there's a ton more, including all of his letters and stuff. This, which I'm um, sure are fascinating. I'm sure they are too. And this has made me want to learn Spanish. The same. Um, reading through his stuff, um, which I definitely I don't read Spanish at all. But I would learn to be able to read his stuff, uh, and it might happen in the future. Yeah, no, I definitely would like to learn Spanish to at least read his. So many good Latin American poets out there. Totally. Is there anything else you wanted to talk yeah, about? Yeah, no, I, I, I was trying to think of anything. I, I, I can't think of anything. The only thing I'd mention is, um, since I've, we've talked about Roberto Bolaño in a lot of previous episodes, Bolaño wrote a poem to Ernesto Cardinal at one point. So that's worth checking out. Oh, if really? That, yeah, if, if you're looking for a way in, maybe that's a way in for you. Interesting. I will have to read that now. I'm like taking notes as we're talking. Yeah, it's a short one. Okay. You, you'll cool. you'll read it in about two minutes, I think. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, th- thank you for talking. Yeah, thank you for having me back on. It was really, really nice to talk to you again. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you.